It's amazing to think of how creative individuals can be at any given moment, right? Because you you see something and you go, hey, we could shift this, we could change this, we could make it better. And you try to think of creative ways in which to make that happen. You know, it's like the saying that uh, necessity is the mother of invention, right? So when there's a need, you can say, okay, we need to adapt, we need to change, we need to think of something, whatever it might be, to make it work. You know, throughout history, there have been some incredible inventions or discoveries because of this very reason. They recognize that there's something not right or something not working, and they try to figure out, how do we make it better? Things in the world of medicine, we see the progression over time, and maybe we don't agree with everything that happens in the world of medicine, but we go, okay, look, people are trying to make things better, and they're finding creative ways to do it. We have invented so many wonderful things. It is incredible to think about. I am marveled by some of the stuff that just the reality of how like a TV works. I don't get it, but that's amazing. Thank you. I can watch my, you know, daytime soap operas now. But one invention though, to me, stands above all the rest. This one singular invention saw a problem and saw that it needed to be fixed. And in order to fix that problem, they came up with one of the best ideas in history. And that idea is the power ballad. And some of you are like, what's a power ballad? And that is an appropriate response. If you are of a similar uh, middle-agedness as I am, or maybe a little bit older, you can remember a time in music history when you actually had to buy albums. You didn't just stream things. You had to buy something. They called it a cassette. Eventually, you know, some people had vinyl, if you were really special. And they eventually had these CDs. It was fantastic. You had to pay money for it. And the amazing thing was, you didn't know what all the songs sounded like. So you had to trust that you would like what you were purchasing. As music history progressed, you saw there's some movement and change of how sound goes, just as today, like if the music you listen to today, if you're younger, your parents are probably like, this is awful, why do you listen to it? I know I do that to my daughter, and I'm really cool and hip. And so it changes over time. And so what was once considered, you know, rock music, uh, you know, it was actually more very poppy in its sound in the 1950s and, and going into the 60s. And then in the 60s, it kind of got a little more aggressive. It got a little more, like, harder, louder, faster, and it kind of progressed into rock that, you know, different different tastes, everybody has a different idea of what they like. But as it got progressively a little harder and heavier, it kind of, like, ostracized some people, because some people were like, I only listen to softer music, and I only like softer music. And so... Bands who maybe once upon a time would have been in the rock genre and made lots of money because they're in the rock genre and people buy their albums, realize that not everybody listened to the music that they were making. So they invented something wonderful called the power ballad, which was kind of a soft, romantic song on the album. And they would release it as a single. So it would get on the radio and people would be like, wow, this song's really great. Some of you know what a radio is, I know, but... This song is wonderful. And you'd be like waiting, like, this isn't the top ten. I gotta record it on one of those cassettes I was talking about. It was a fantastic time in our lives. And people would be like, yeah, this, this song's great. And they would listen to it and they'd be like, wow, I, I wanna buy this album. So they would buy the album. And they'd be like, oh, track three. It's 
I love that song. It's the, the, you know, we can name a bunch of them. We could say, Every Rose Has Its Thorn by Poison, or Nothing Else Matters by Metallica, or November Rain by Guns N' Roses. These are great symphonies of music and softness and messages. I love it. So you buy the album. You spend your 20 bucks or whatever it costs back in the 80s. I don't know exactly what it cost. It was a long time ago. And then you put the album on, and you listen to it, and you go, that doesn't sound like what I want. And you fast forward. You had to like, you can't just click tracks. Like it was horrible. You guys don't know how good you have it now. And you fast forward and finally you get to the song. You're like, this is like not at all what I wanted. But you love that power ballad, the greatest invention of mankind. But you don't like the rest of it. Sometimes we like one part, but not the whole. And so you'd buy that album, you'd say, well, I like that song, but I'm not actually a fan of the band. Sometimes you hear a part, and you say, that sounds great. But then as you listen to the rest of it, you're like, this is different than what I want or expect. In many ways, Jesus is like a 1980s album. There are some power ballads there. We heard one last week. A fantastic message from Harry around the wedding at Cana where it's full of joy and miracles and just fantasticness. People are partying. It's wonderful. It's happy-go-lucky. We love that story. It's like, hey, Jesus, this is your power ballad. It's soft. It's wonderful. We love this Jesus. But eventually, the next track doesn't always sound the same. And Jesus gets a little more aggressive and actually a little bit angry. And so we go, ooh. I like the last track of Jesus, not necessarily this one. But you're not really a fan of the band if you don't like it all. It's the same way with Jesus. Jesus is much more complicated and much more complex than just saying Jesus is always like this. Jesus embodies all of the human realities that all of us have, but also the divinity of God, the holiness, the righteousness, the complete sacredness that's different than everything that we are. And so last week, we got to hear and learn from this wonderful story of a miracle at a wedding. Today, we see a very different side of Jesus. And what I'm going to say to you is that this different side is still Jesus. And as different as this side of Jesus is, you're not a fan of Jesus or a follower of Jesus if you can't accept both sides. John chapter 2, the direct story after the wedding in Cana, is one that some of us are familiar with if we've been around church for a while, or even if we've seen, gone to museums or seen art. It's a story that, uh, for some of us, we might think, well, this came out of nowhere, but it's deeply rooted in tradition and history and a reality of who Jesus is and what he does and why it matters. So in John chapter 2, we're jumping in. Again, at verse 13, and it says this. It said, when it was almost time for the Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, John's gospel records three Passover events. Passover is a very significant event. For those of us who may be a little bit familiar with it, we know it from the story of the Old Testament, or we know it from around Easter time, where we watch the Ten Commandments on TV. It's the story of how God passed over the Israelites, while they were captive in Egypt with a final plague of death. And they passed over the Israelites by spreading the blood of a lamb on doorposts to mark them as God's people 
to be freed from the angel of death. And so every year, Israelites, Jewish individuals, followers of Yahweh, the Old Testament Torah, would go to Jerusalem to commemorate this event. They would travel from wherever they were. So there's probably about 100,000 Jews living in Israel at this time of writing. But there were probably about a million Jews who would travel to Israel for this event. It was a significant event, and everyone did it unless they couldn't do it for health reasons or whatever that might be. It was what they did. It was a pilgrimage. So Jesus, being a good Jew, went to Jerusalem, went to where the temple was. Because that's where they celebrated and sacrificed a lamb in commemorating this. A reminder of who God is and what he did. And so it says here that it was almost time for Passover and he went. It says, in the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So when he goes into the temple, he sees that there's people who are selling in this temple. Now, why would they be selling? That should be the question we're asking. And where are they selling? Well, they're selling because what's going to happen at Passover is that individuals are going to go to the temple to make a sacrifice, an atoning-type sacrifice for the, you know, however bad they've been that year, they would buy a different animal or bring an animal with them to sacrifice to seek God's forgiveness. And so they would bring animals with them, or if they didn't bring animals with them, they would have to find a way to get animals. So in the temple courts, people are selling these animals so that people can sacrifice them. And so if you look at what this is a rendition of what the temple is, the area that we're talking about is kind of those areas off to the side. There are different sections within the temple, the way it's designed. There's this area called the Holy of Holies that very, 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 very few people can get to because that's where God resides. There's an area just outside of it, which is for the Israelite Jewish men, so just the men. There's a section just below, which was for the Jewish women. And then it was the court around it, the court of the Gentiles, where men and women who maybe they follow Yahweh, the God that we understand through the Old Testament, but they were not born Israelite, and or maybe they don't even follow God, and they're just kind of coming in. This area was densely populated with people, so we're thinking like about a million people are coming to this temple at this time. It was densely populated with people, and in this court, this court, it's, basically they're saying this is the outsider's court, there's tons of animals. Sometimes when we think about this event, we think about it based on what pictures we've seen and maybe don't understand the gravity of the situation. And so there are paintings like this one where you're like, hey, there's maybe 20, 30 people in random states of dress. I don't understand why. That's Renaissance art, right? Um, tiny babies and fountains. And Jesus is like tossing stuff around and saying, get out of here. It's probably not at all like that. There's potentially a million people. They needed animals for a million people. That's a lot of cows and doves hanging around. If you've ever been around a cow, 
you know they take a little bit more space than a person. They're filling this court, this area, that's meant for the outsiders with animals to sell. Where are the people fitting in? They're putting these animals to sell where people belong. The grandness of this situation is disturbing to Jesus. People are buying and selling, and most scholars would say likely what is happening is people are selling at a higher price than what it's actually worth. It's kind of like when you go to the movies. They say, don't bring your food in, and then they charge you like $10 for stale popcorn. Same idea, but a lot worse. So they're selling a cow or a dove or whatever a person believes they need to be made right with God at an excessive price that likely, because we're talking about Roman-occupied Israel, likely they can't afford. And they're doing it in the place where people are supposed to be able to come to connect with God. And the text continues. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle, he scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. He made a whip. I've never made a whip. I imagine it doesn't happen very quickly. So Jesus is there. He doesn't bring a whip. He's not planning this out. He's there. He sees what's happening. It's full of animals in this place where people are supposed to come to connect with God, where people are being overcharged, likely. So he makes a whip with cords that he finds around. I can imagine Jesus taking 15 minutes trying to tie some ropes and Peter being like, hey, what are you doing, Jesus? What's going on? He's like, just wait, just wait. It's going to be good. (laughs) He makes a whip and he drives out the animals. The animals that are a prophet for the temple. He drives them out and he flips the tables. I'm very tempted to flip this table, but I won't because I don't know what it'll do. I didn't practice. He's upset. He's angry. He is, however he's whipping, he's whipping and driving animals out. Again, these aren't just a few animals. We're talking lots of animals moving out of this space. When you look at renditions of the temple, you see that there are gates. It's not like it's a big open space. There are walls that surround it, and there are particular gates for different reasons, as you read through the Old Testament. They're herding all these animals out into the city. Where do they go? You know, they don't just disappear. But he makes a whip, he drives them out, he flips the tables. And he says, to those who sold the doves, he said, get those out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. 
this event that takes place. They're going to the temple for the Passover. It's supposed to be a religious ceremony they're going to do. They're doing their good Jewish proper practice. He goes in and he sees what's actually happening. What's happening is a great injustice. First, they're selling animals in the courts. Again, likely at an above-priced cost. They're taking advantage of people. On top of that, they're filling the space where people are supposed to be able to come to be with God, to worship, to have their opportunity, and they're not letting people get in because it's filled with hundreds, if not thousands, of cows, or tens of thousands, or hundreds of thousands. Because if you have a million people, and they're looking to sacrifice cows, you need enough cows for them. And as he sees what's going on, he doesn't just get, say, hey, what's going on? This isn't good. He makes a whip. He changes something about it. He drives them out. He flips the tables. And he says to the ones who've got the doves in their cages, you are making God's space something it's not supposed to be. You are wrong. And as he does all of this, his followers go, hey, this is something that was prophesied. The Messiah would have zeal for the Lord. Jesus sees the great injustice that's occurring, and he cannot stand it. Two forms of injustice. One is against people, these women and these Gentiles, who could not go in any further to worship are being pushed out even more because people want to make money. And the second injustice is they are mocking the holiness of God. They're saying what God does here doesn't matter. The temple was run by the Pharisees. The Pharisees, if we read through stories of Jesus' time, were individuals who deeply loved and were concerned about the law and doing the right thing. Sometimes they cared so much, they added right things on top of the right things God asked for and made it harder for people. And as you read through John, you read through Matthew, you read through Mark or Luke, the gospel accounts, you see how these people who have a good, righteous desire to begin with perverted it and twisted it and turned it into something that punished people that should never have been. And at one point in John's gospel, Jesus will even say, hey, you love the law, but you ignore the prophets. They loved the rules so much, they ignored those people that said, hey, you're not following the rules. Because if they did listen to the prophets, they would have listened to people whose writings we have, like Amos. Who in Amos 5, Amos is going to say, away with your songs, but let justice roll like a river. Away with your worship. Why? Because you are promoting injustice. You are treating people wrong. You are perverting the worship of God. I don't have time for it, Amos is going to speak for God and say. I don't have time for you to just go and do your dutiful duties of religiosity. What I want is justice. What I want is mercy. What I want is love. Jesus would be rightfully aware of what Amos would have said. And he would have seen what is happening in the temple. A place that was meant for worship, 
for making people right with God. And he would have seen how people perverted it, distorted it, and were denying people what God desired for them. And he gets angry. He gets so angry, he takes the time to make a whip. How often are you so angry that you take the time to make a whip? Probably never. Sometimes our anger is reactionary, right? We see something, we say something, we hear something, whatever it might be, and we react in anger. Like, this is wrong, or I don't like this. Maybe it's something as simple as somebody cut me off in traffic, and so I will follow them with my high beams on for a little while longer because I'm angry. Or something so simple as somebody in those self-checkout lines has a full cart and you're just fuming. You're like, it's supposed to be like 15 items. What are they doing? Don't they know where I have to be? We see things, we experience things, and we get so angry when it seems to be something that's happening to us. And some of them are valid, but some of them not so much. Jesus gets angry when he sees when people are doing to God and what they're doing to other people. When he sees that they are mocking the holiness of God in his rightful place of worship, when he sees that they're taking advantage of people who deserve to have the freedom to worship, when he sees this, he gets angry, and he drives them out, and he makes a change. The question of what made Jesus angry is this twofold response. When people mock the holiness of God, and when people deface the image of God in the way they treat each other, Jesus is angry. Jesus is rightfully angry. So angry, he will drive the animals out and make it right. Prevent the injustice from happening. Prevent the mockery of God from happening. Jesus is too points that drive him to this anger are the two things, if you read through your Gospels, the two things that will come up as he says, that's everything in the faith life of a follower of Jesus. To love God and to love your neighbor as yourself. When asked, what is the greatest command or what does all of the law hang on? He says that. He says, love God with all that you have and love your neighbor as yourself. And what he witnessed in the temple was people were mocking God and hating their neighbor. And he couldn't stand it. That's what makes Jesus angry. As much as we love the happy-go-lucky Jesus who makes extra wine at a party, I really love the Jesus who takes the time to make a whip and says, you know what, this is wrong. we got to fix this. And I also love that that's all. Jesus. Both sides. It's the whole album. You can't be a fan if you don't accept it all. The hard part becomes when the thing that Jesus is angry at is the thing that you're doing. Because then you have to look in the mirror and go, ooh, how do I change that? Who would we be in those temple courts? Some of us, maybe we would be those Gentiles who are trying to get in. Others of us, we might be selling those cows. What do we do when we face the anger of Jesus? How do we respond to it? 
Well, I think one of the ways that we can respond is we can ask ourselves a reflective question. What makes you angry? Is it when you get cut off? For sure. Is it when that person has too many items in the self-checkout lane? Absolutely. Is it when people don't communicate well and say something that hurts your feelings? Absolutely. But are you getting angry at the things that Jesus got angry at? When people mock God? When people treat other people unfairly? What would it look like if we realigned our anger to what Jesus is upset about? What would drive us to take the time to make our proverbial whip and make a change? Jesus gets angry when people are not loving God and not loving their neighbor. Not only so, when they are mocking God and harming their neighbor. That should make us angry too. And that should drive us to fashion our own whips and bring change as we can as we choose to love God and love our neighbors ourselves, and make that our priority. Not allowing what frustrates us, what discourages us, what angers us, to drive our actions through our emotions, but to choose to love God fully and to love our neighbors ourselves, because our neighbor is made in that image of God, the one that we love. What makes you angry? How can you align it with the Jesus who says injustice is wrong and love God above all else? Let's pray. God, I thank you that you are more complex than any words I share can explain. That we can't simply pigeonhole you to be a God like this or a God like that. That though we can know you through Jesus, we have so much to learn. That we can humbly come to you, learn from you, and see more and more who you are. As we look at the story of you, Jesus, of how you could not stand what was happening and had to bring a change, as we look at this story and we see a bigger picture of who you are, as we come to see you, help us to see what that means in our lives. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you help us to see where do we fit in in this story? Are we the ones wishing to get into worship but can't because someone's preventing it? And on us, you have compassion. You see the injustice and you act and have acted for us. Or are we the ones causing this injustice? Pushing people away who deeply need to know you? Or are we the ones that are ignoring you altogether and more concerned about our personal gain than worshiping a holy God? I pray you open our hearts and our minds to reflect and know which it is. And to also know that, Jesus, you deeply love and care for each of us, so much so that you died for us, for the forgiveness of our sins, and to experience life in its fullness. And that in your resurrection, we can have that life. No matter 
who we are in this story. You are the God who loves us and the God who wants a relationship with us and who invites us to come to you to reflect and admit where we need to, how we've distanced ourselves from you, how we may have mocked you and may have hurt others, and freely receive the forgiveness you offer and to move forward in a new, better way. I thank you for that gift, a gift for all of us. I just pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.